This year, our Tour de France coverage here on the Vell News Podcast is being brought to us by our good friends at Garmin, makers of the Garmin Edge line of bike computers. Now, last time we caught up, I talked about my experiences with the Garmin Edge 530, but this week I'm talking about the new Garmin Edge 830, which replaces the Edge 820. There's a ton of upgrades with the 830. The display screen is 13% larger. The battery life has improved from 15 to 20 hours, and if you use it in battery save mode, you can get 48 hours of use out of it. Uh, one thing that I think is really cool is the touchscreen capabilities on the Edge 830 are pretty awesome. If you have muddy fingers, if you're like me, you often have sweaty fingers or sticky fingers from some gel that has gotten on your finger, it will work amazingly well. And uh, like the 530, it has this Find My Edge feature, uh, if you're like me and you travel often and your bike computer gets lost in your luggage or someplace else, you can call it up on your phone and find it really easily. Now, there's also a ton of performance-based features on the Garmin Edge 830. I could talk probably for the entire length of the podcast about them. Uh, things like the Find My Find My Fork uh, feature, which which helps you determine where you're going to go when you're mountain biking. To all these different features that talk about hydration and performance, what you need to do when you're on a ride. I again suggest you go to velnews.com, read Chris Case's thorough review of the Garmin Edge 830, and again. Thanks to Garmin for sponsoring our Tour de France coverage here at the Velenews Podcast. Okay, let's get on with the show. You are tuned into the Velo News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, Editor-in-Chief of Velo News, and I am coming to you. Uh, we haven't recorded one of these in about two weeks. Uh, we are at the first rest day of the Tour de France. Uh, we're going to talk all about the Tour de France, all about what happened in this first opening third of the race, some of the excitement that happened on Monday's 10th stage. Uh, but before we get to all that, um, I'm joined by my main man, Andrew Hood. And, and Hoodie, we got to tell the good listeners here why they have not heard you and me drone on and on and on in their ears for the last two weeks. And why we are not in France this year, because Andrew Hood, you are coming to us live from the man cave in the Hood residence. So uh, I'll let you go first, Hoodie. Why aren't you at the Tour de France this year? Indeed, Fred. I'm not there. You're not there. We have a bunch of uh, you know B-teamers out there in France covering. Nah, not B-teamers. Got some great guys covering, us, uh, covering the Tour for us this year. Well, I had one of those... Uh, life-altering bike crashes uh two weeks ago actually to today you know kind of almost my one of my last rides before the tour uh was just out for a little pretty innocuous little spin and uh just was uh, drinking a water bottle one of those kind of things you just do all the time i was leaning down over the handlebar slotting the water bottle back into the cage and hit like a little hole it was only about a four inch wide hole took out my front wheel and old hoodie just went straight down into the pavement and snapped my collarbone and uh, snapped three of my old ribs. And for the first time since 1996, I am not in France this summer. I'm missing it, Fred. I'm missing it. Um, I am uh, so happy to tell the listeners that Andy has a spring in his step and he has a lot of life in his voice right now. It, it has been two weeks. We have connected since b before this. And I got to tell you, some of those first calls with you, Andy, you sounded – really in pain broken ribs broken collarbone all torn up i'm happy to hear you sounded so sprightly and happy right now because when we connected right after you know a couple days after that crash man you sounded pretty worse for wear <laughs> that's right i mean i've never had broken ribs before man it hurts to breathe let alone to laugh and and my gosh i had one day i had to sneeze and was like i haven't i haven't sneezed since then that's that's one of the most painful things you can do besides childbirth i think is sneeze when you have broken ribs um 
Yeah, man, that was that was my worst bike crash probably in you know a good twenty years. I haven't crashed like that in a long time. And usually it's one of you know when you crash, you kind of slid out, slide out in the corner. You got time to maybe break or adjust or something, put an arm out. It was just one of those kind of uh, high side crashes over the top of the bar, straight down on the ground. No time to really do anything, and it I, whoa, it was a hard hard blow to the old body. Listeners sure. should listeners should take note. I got a, an email from Hoodie just a couple hours afterwards, basically you know saying, hey, in the hospital, broke bones probably not going to happen for the tour de france this year and i was freaked out i was like oh my god oh my god what is wrong with andy hood i mean obviously i was bummed and concerned that we were going to have to find an auxiliary plan for covering the tour de france but really i was i gotta i gotta admit i got a little teary-eyed i was like oh my god i I hope andy hood is okay what what is the state of the spanish hospital that he's in do they have podcast recording equipment there uh where are his hot takes gonna go um, but I, I'm happy to, to report that, you know, you were doing okay and, you know, you're beat up and bruised, but you're going to recover. We expected to make a full recovery from this accident. Is that correct? Andy hood. Indeed. Indeed. Hopefully I'll be back in a, you know, sp- uh, full steed in time for the Welta Spagna here in a few weeks. It's always the Welta. It's the great thing about having the Welta at the end of the season. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, nothing too serious. It could have been a lot worse. One of those crashes, you know, could have been a lot worse. So I'm, I'm thankful that uh, walking away with just a snap collarbone, it's not too, too bad. But man, that, that, you know how it is, man. Those first couple of days after a bike crash, man, <laughs> it never feels good, does it? What about you, Fred? Why, why are you not in France? I know. Guilty. Guilty. Uh, I am not there because I said this in the last podcast that my interview with Jason Gay. My wife and I are expecting our first child any day now. Actually, we are within uh, 10 days of blast off date for when our kiddo is going to come rumble is supposed to come rumbling into this world so you know as much as i tried to sell my wife on letting me go gallivant across france for three weeks and hang out with my good pal hoodie and rupert guinness and eat some weird french cuisine and maybe have to stop at a buffalo grill decided not to decided uh, that that would probably not go over too well no i was uh, i was wasn't gonna go this year um i'm psyched man i'm gonna be a dad I'm going to be a dad. Congratulations. It's a little, it's a little scary. Uh, I don't know if my if my child will enjoy cycling. I will try and expose her to the the mysteries that is bicycle racing, but um, you know, it's kind of a kind of an esoteric weird sport. I I, I don't know if she I don't know if she's going to take it. She might just, you know, suck her thumb and drool. <laughs> hey, it's a tour baby. So, you know, it's perfect for the appropriate for the dad. But, you know, Fred, we were talking before the podcast started, you know, this is really the first time in years, probably both of us have actually just been able to watch the race, right? I mean, here we are. I mean, normally when you go to the Tour de France, you know, we've talked about this before, what it's like covering these races. You, you know, you're basically just driving around France all day. You, you go to the start, you get a few minutes with the riders and the sport directors, and you drive two, three, four hours sometimes to get to the finish line. You're in the press room. You might try to grab a sandwich along the way, a baguette, and then you run down to the finish line and try to talk to the riders, and you never really watch the race. So it's been kind of nice for me. You know, sitting on my couch with my painkillers, uh, kicking back and just watching the race unfold every day. And I have to say, it's quite uh, – it's a different kind of perspective. I'm kind of enjoying it. Not to say I don't want to go back. No, I'm with you. It is completely bizarre not watching the Tour de France while staring at the Astana bus at the like, you know, the, the TV that has a has a lot of glare on it that you can't, you know, you cannot decipher what's actually going on where, you know, you, sometimes your first question to the rider after they cross the line is, so what happened out there? Please give me the basic information. Uh, it, it's kind of nice just being at the at my desk or on my couch and watching it because you know you do get to see so much nuance and so many of these um, other storylines pop up throughout the race. And we're going to get to some of these talking about you know things like mid-race time bonuses and teams that are using the terrain and the wind to their advantage to uh, you know take hold of the race. And and a lot of times when you're covering the Tour de France, you're hearing about these things, you're talking to the riders about them, but you're not actually seeing them go on because like you mentioned, your opportunities to actually watch the race are so few and far between. And and that really has stood out to me because Hoodie, this first third or so of the Tour de France has been completely unlike any tours that I've I feel like I've seen in recent memory because it's been so 
just challenging, dynamic, exciting. There's only been a couple of those long, flat, boring sprint stages. And on some of these days, we've seen just a lot of action and we've seen the GC riders have to battle each other. Uh, what, what can you say about that? This compared to, you know, the tradition of the tour, which is, you know, usually to have kind of a kind of a boring, slow start to the race. Yeah, I think it's been, uh, I think I'd say it's two factors. I think one, you hit the head on uh, the nail on the head there with the course design. I think this year, starting up in, in Brussels, starting in Belgium and kind of jumping right down into the Vosges, stage six, uh, the La Planche de Billfield, already got into some good hilly terrain there. Even the day before, that was quite challenging. Already having some good racing right in that first half, that first week of this tour. Whereas last year, we kind of started way down on the West Coast. By the time it looped around, all the way around, it took a, a very, you know, it was more than a week before we got into some interesting geography. So I think in this year's tour, they've done a good job of creating kind of this interesting balanced route that actually is interesting on the front end because all the good stuff is really packed in the backside of this race. We haven't hit a really the first mountain stage yet, and we won't really until later this week. And of course, then the final week is just the brutal stages across the Alps. But I think the other kind of key point really is the fact that Chris Froome is not on the race. Um, what happened today kind of took the wind out of the sails of a lot of guys that lost time in these echelons. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I think going into this tour, there was a different level of anticipation that we had not seen really in the past several years. I think a lot of guys were coming into the tour when Chris Froome was there in full strength. You know, a lot of the times I think people were racing almost mentally, psychologically racing for the podium, whereas I think a lot of teams came into this tour thinking, you know, it's it's there for ours for the taking and they're racing to win. And that has shown dramatically throughout this first half of this tour. It has. I mean, we look at some of these punchy stages from the first week. Stage three, Bincha to Epernay, which Julian Alaphilippe won with this very dramatic attack, just panache-filled attack. And while we didn't see any major time gaps in the GC group, uh, the bunch had to work for it. You know, uh, Garrett Thomas last five seconds or so coming into the, fi- the into the finish. Stage six, Planche de Belfi, obviously a big throwdown. We saw the steep finale, some dirt in there, 24% gradient. Um, and that was very difficult for the GC contenders. Uh, Dylan Toons took the breakaway. But, you know, in the GC group, Garen Thomas really showed himself being strong, taking a few seconds away. Thibaut Pino showing a tremendous amount of punch in his legs on that stage. And then just a couple days later, Macon to Macon to Saint-Étienne, where that was the breakaway day won by Thomas de Ghent. And that, to me, was a day when Thibaut Pino, Julian Alaphilippe, sprung from the group on this final day. That, to me, was one of those days where you're like, okay, normally, if this was a, a normal first day, first week of the Tour de France, this would be like a lumpy stage, but the final 20K are pretty flat. Or this is kind of a flat stage transfer day. And, you know, that stage was, to a certain degree, a transfer stage, and it took them from one side, you know, one end of France to the next. But by throwing in some of this lumpy terrain and a steep climb there right at the finish... Um, it made it interesting, and it made it so that the GC guys really had to be on. Um, they had to be on the next day. Daryl Impey wins stage nine. You know, we didn't see quite the amount of fireworks, but we saw Roman Bardet, Richie Port, really flexing their muscles on that final climb. And that all built up to stage 10, which on paper looked like it was going to be a very innocuous rolling and flat stage that was probably going to end in a bunch sprint. And lo and behold, stage 10 ends up being perhaps the most influential GC stage that we've had so far, even more so than La Planche de Belfi because of the time gaps that we saw in these brutal crosswinds. Now, Andy Hood, as a uh, bicycle watcher, a bicycle race watcher, what are some of the pointers you're going to come away with from stage 10, which saw this front group with Sky, with, with Ineos and Quickstep and some of these other teams just just roll on some of the other GC contenders? Yeah, I think there's a few takeaways. I think uh, the one thing that uh, jumped out today was really – kind of the cumulative effect of all of these of these stages so far because you really saw it when the when the race split up towards the end of the stage today where 
the riders were just it, riders were just on their own. These these team leaders that were in that second chase group, that uh, you saw how hard these first ten stages of his tour actually have been. When it really came down to crunch time, when that second group, after it splintered and they were chasing back, I think you said Fred, they came down within twelve seconds of getting back on. But at that point, all the helpers that were in that group had put everything in, into it to close that gap down. And then it was just Pinot and Port and Molama and Fugosang trying to shut it down by themselves. And it just shows you how demanding and and really the fatigue is already starting to set in 10 stages into this tour. You know, what are we going to see once we get into the Pyrenees and the Alps? Because I think guys are going to be on their knees, honestly, by the time we get into this last part of this race. And then the second thing goes back to racing basics, right? It's about team strength, and it's about positioning. If you're a GC guy, you got to be at the front. You got to have your radar on, radar on all the time because anything can happen. I don't think people were expecting echelons today, and it's really hard to say how actually windy it was out there. It wasn't like uh, gusting flats up there on the on the Dutch coast where we've seen these big gaps before up in Brittany or in northern France. It was a it was a good steady breeze, but it wasn't like these brutal brutal crosswinds. But man, it, this, people got caught out of position. They were in the wrong spot. And you know how that is, man. You lose the wheel, the elastic snaps. Someone misses that gap, and to shut down that fifty meters, it's like it's like a half kilometer, within within seconds. So for fans, I recommend going back and queuing this up on uh, on the internet and watching the replay of stage ten because it was really interesting. You know, the the cliff's notes is that okay, it's about 32, 33 k to go, and EF Education first gets to the front, whole team, and just starts. Hitting it really hard, really strong pace. They sensed there was wind. You know, some of the riders had said, "Hey, we 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 picked this day out as a potential crosswind day because it's flat and hilly, but it's the area is known for wind." So EF Education first goes to the front, and they're on the front for a couple minutes, and you can see it stringing out behind. And you know, the the announcers made comment like, "Oh, this is terrible for George Bennett. He's fourth place overall, but he was like back at the car shagging bottles and had to like ride back up with a." pocket full of bottles but ef isn't on the front for very long and then all of a sudden they cut back to the front and it's takuna quickstep and bora hansgrohe and some riders from ineos and they're really hitting it hard and you can't see any pink jerseys anywhere and then all of a sudden there's an overhead shot and it shows the group rumbling through a roundabout or something and all the pink jerseys are a third of the way down through the field and then gaps start opening up and I believe it was when they went through a roundabout that may have caused one of these gaps to open up. And that was the official split between Peloton 1, which is in the front, which has Garen Thomas, Egan Bernal, Ineos, Dakuna Quickstep driving the pace, and Peloton number two. And it, Peloton at first, Peloton number two is pretty big. And, you know, you're looking at, well, there's 30 Ks to go. That Peloton number two is pretty big. I, I would imagine they'd be able to catch on. But like you said, Hoodie, after five or 10 Ks of that intense chasing and knowing how fatigued these guys are this early in the race, after all these hilly days, boy, that second Peloton just exploded. And yeah, the gap was only 12 seconds, but by that point, it was just these GC guys like Rigoberto Uran, Thibaut Pino, Jakob Fuglesang in there. And that 12 second gap is as small as it got. And it just, just got much, much bigger. So... A question that I have that these are probably unanswerable questions are, why couldn't Astana close that gap? Astana, one of the strongest teams on paper. Um, why did EF Education first go to the front at that moment and apparently gas themselves to the point where they could not hold the wheel? Um, there's just a bunch of questions that I have in my mind after this day. Because like you said, Hoodie, you know, we've seen tours before where there's an early day in the crosswinds where someone gets caught out. I think you mentioned it was a Nairo Quintana up uh, when this tour started in Eindhoven a few years ago. He got he got echeloned out the back last some t- time early. But a day like today where the time gaps are like a, a minute and 40 seconds, I mean, that's a big time gap. You have to just wonder if like, if, if some of these directors and, and team riders are getting yelled at tonight in the team hotel. Yeah, there'll be a lot of sad faces around the dinner table tonight, that's for sure. I mean, you look at, uh, I think a lot of it came down to positioning and just where riders were at that moment because you look at Astana, you know, they on paper are the strongest team, and they only had, I think, one, maybe two guys in that chase group helping Fuglesang trying to close down that gap. And 
the, the front group just kind of had the numbers. They had Bora, they had uh, Enios, Dikuna Quickstep, which is the master of these kinds of stages. But you had a lot of Sunweb guys driving for the sprint. You had Movistar was there at Mass as well. So I think it was just the the, the, the kind of numbers. And then when you kind of get that, you get that, it's kind of like you get that, you know, there's suffering behind you. And that just helps you pour it on even more. And Enios, and I think, uh, just really slammed the door on a lot of these guys today. It really took, I think, uh, you know, one of the narratives going into the rest day tomorrow was supposed to be what a, what a, what a tight tour. No one knows who's going to win. There's still, you know, 10, 12 guys within a minute of each other. Man, that, that story is turned upside down after what happened today because you look at the GC now and Garrett Thomas is sitting very pretty in the virtual GC. And you got right behind him, Egan Bernal. And behind him, there's not really, you know, some of the guys are looking strong early in the race. Guys like Fuglesong and uh, and uh, Pinot, man, they've lost, they lost 140 today, so they're two, three minutes back. Yeah, you look at the guys who are trailing right on their heels, that being Egan Bernal and Garen Thomas. And, okay, Stephen Kreuzwick is uh, up there. Okay, Kreuzwick, you know, he's a good, experienced GC leader, but I've never – I've never had him on a t- as a tier one favorite to win the Tour de France. And then it's like Emmanuel Buchmann. I mean, he's strong, but I'm sorry. He just doesn't have the experience to be amongst the favorites. Enric Maas, he's at 146. Again, young, strong rider, but just not the first first tour. First tour. I mean, Adam Yates is up there. You know, Then you start getting into the Nairo Quintana. I mean, he's a minute back. Dan Martin, but uh, Pino, who to me, Pino and Fuglesong are the biggest losers because Pino looked exceptionally strong on La Planche de Belfi. Pino was riding very aggressively. He was the darling of the French press after that dramatic attack with Julian Alaphilippe. And now all of a sudden, the door, I mean, he just got squashed. He just got completely squashed. Uh, you know, to, to me, he is the biggest casualty of this stage 10. And look at look at uh, Ineos. I mean, wh- you know, the, uh, Garrett Thomas. He's crashed twice in this first week, but the way he rode at the uh, the Belfield, and the way he rode today, and uh, to limit his losses the other day when he crashed when Michael Woods got tangled up in that stage, the day that Alaphilippe got back the uh, jersey. I mean, uh, they're just really sitting in the pole position right now, aren't they? They got Thomas right there, Egon Bernal, who's really. Bernal, I mean, people have been saying, oh, Garrett Thomas has been impressive. And, and Garrett Thomas has been very impressive. And he's looked way sharper than I expect him to be after missing, after crashing out of the Tour de Suisse and kind of looking, uh, you know, looking not really his best this whole spring. But he's obviously really in very, very good shape, better than I think a lot of people expected him to be. But you got Bernal, who's kind of just floated through this first week. And I think that Bernal, man, is really sitting in a good position because – you know, he's been saying publicly, I'm here to race for Thomas. So all the pressure is on Thomas. Thomas could step up and deliver him, and he's looking very good. But Bernal, Bernal is just going to be there waiting. And that final week of the tour is going to be so many long, high-altitude climbs. And I think this is set up to where Bernal could actually win. Yeah, I think uh, Bernal is and, – and, you know, unlike Thomas, he hasn't hit the deck yet. So he's actually skated by with a pretty, pretty easy tour thus far. So – once again, Team Ineos, how do they do it? Somehow, magically able to avoid all these problems. Well, I guess it wouldn't say magically, um, you know, as we saw today. Like, great positioning, and then at the right moment, throwing Gianni Moscon and Luke Rowe on the front to aid in this big attack. Um, you know, another Ineos moment, we mentioned it before, was this stage in which Garen Thomas crashed 15K to go and had to get back on his bike, and Team Ineos ran, wrote a team time trial to get him back into contention. Have you watched the replay of that, Andy? Um, I've seen a couple yeah. different replays of that. And to me, it, it it's just, just really impressive how quickly the whole team goes from, you know, being on the ground, complete stop to getting Garen Thomas back on his bike and pushing him up there. I mean, it was just like a knee jerk reaction. Boom, 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 boom. Here you are back on your way. Yeah. I think that goes to show just, how well drilled this team is. I mean, a lot of people will criticize Enios and Sky for some of the legacy issues they've had, but they've also they also do things very well. I'm sure it's something that they've that's drilled into them, you know, right from the beginning of of every day. 
They're very meticulous in their preparation. They talk through every scenario. And so they know what to do when someone crashes. When their team leader crashes, they know exactly what to do. It's not like, oh, where, you know, where's Garrett Thomas? Oh, where's Igabel? They have their radar on all the time. They know what to, exactly what to do. And you can compare that to what happened today with Movistar. Uh, Mikel Landa was in that front group today, and he got tangled up with uh, Barguil, got knocked off the road, and he crashed. And uh, Movistar, a little bit scenario, Movistar had to send back. Uh, they had, I think, three guys in that front group, also with Valverde, Quintana, and Landa. So they sent three three guys back to try to help chase back Landa, and they could not do it. A little bit different scenario, but also just shows you the horsepower that Ineos brings. When you look at that lineup, some people have been making the suggestion the team's not as strong without Froome. It's not as strong as it was in the Sky Legacy in the last couple of years. But that team is just as strong as it always has been, and I think they showed it these last couple of days. Uh, another team I feel like that has really turned heads and punched a bit above its weight class is Jumbo Visma. Uh, we saw Wout Van Aert take the stage win today. Wout Van Aert, a, uh, a bunch sprinter, apparently. Um, but that brings their total to three stage wins already in this year's Tour de France. And having a guy right up there in the GC, you know, that's something to me that's extremely impressive because a lot of times these teams that do have GC ambitions have to choose one or the other. And here it is. They've won three stages with three different guys and they have a GC rider and contention. And considering that, you know, Jumbo Visma, I mean, they are, they are a big, successful, impressive outfit, but you would not say that they have one of the biggest budgets in the world tour. Um, I feel like this tour so far has been not, not necessarily the coming out party, but the muscle flex for Jumbo Visma thus far. Yeah, you're right about that. This team has had a breakout tour, but it's been something that's been building over the last couple of years. We've seen it even last year with uh, with the, you know the team had great success last year with Roglic. The tour won a stage. Uh, Groen Vega was developing as a sprinter last year, won a stage as well, and uh, it just kind of built on that momentum. It's an interesting backstory with these guys. Uh, you know, that was came out of the Robble Bank scandal in the wake of the whole Lance Armstrong stuff, uh, 2012-13. Robble Bank pulled out basically Richard Pluga, who uh, who is now the general manager and owner of the team. He was the PR guy of the team. I mean, he was like, you know, the PR, the spokesman for the team working under uh, Robobank. And basically, everyone just pulled up, pulled stakes and left. The ownership was gone. And they said, well, hey, you know, the team's there. Who wants it? He picked it up. He's the, he's now the owner. And he's a smart guy. He's been building this p- program up slowly over the last three or four years, invested a lot in young riders. And you're seeing that. And then they had the foundation of some of the older riders, the guys like the Kreiswicks, um, Haysinks and a few of the older guys that were around. They brought in some of these younger guys, been developing them, and now they're really kind of hitting their stride in this in this kind of the last, I'd say, 15 months, really, going back up even in the last season. But to see Wout Van Aert to, Wout Van Aert to win today, I mean, how huge is that? I mean, you just gotta love these these this you know Wout Van Aert. Uh, Vanderpool, this new generation of writers coming up. They're so exciting to watch. They're so dynamic. I think it's fantastic for, for cycling to have these guys. And it's a big chapeau to, to the Jumbo Visma. Now they have a solid financial foundation. They don't have nearly the money that uh, Ineos does, but they have a, a really strong foundation on that team. And I think we can expect even bigger things. Yeah, I'll correct myself. Actually, Wout Van Aert brings them their fourth win because I had totally forgotten about the uh, the team time trial win that they had in Brussels. So that's uh, out of 10 stages, they have four wins thus far. That's <laughs> yeah. completely ridiculous and all with four different riders. Um, I, th- I think that's that's interesting too, especially, you know, throughout this tour, we've heard uh, rumblings and rumors that Tom Dumoulin may be upset with Team Sunweb and may is being linked with Jumbo Visma, which to me is an interesting wrinkle in the Yumbo Visma story because as you said, Hoodie, up to this point, we have seen this team be the team that has developed talent and taken talent from within. And okay, Wout Van Aert coming aboard, that's a big marquee signing. You know, Wout Van Aert, you know, cyclocross world champion, having some success on the road. You bring him into a big program like Yumbo Visma and he is able to take a step forward. But, you know, bringing on someone 
like Tom Dumoulin, that would represent a new model, which is taking an established star who already has won Grand Tours and bringing them on board. Um, and that, that to me is really interesting. It's not saying it's going to happen. These are all just the rumors that tend to buzz around the Tour de France when people are looking at contracts and sort of taking the lay of the land and trying to decide which team they're going to go to next. But to me, that was just uh, that, uh, that was a strange wrinkle. What what Jumbo Visma would be like with Tom Dumoulin on the roster? Yeah, I think they'd be even stronger, wouldn't they? Obviously, to have a, a guarantee right there. And you know, often, there's often been criticism that uh, Sunweb hasn't really had the firepower to support Dumoulin for a rider of his caliber. I mean, Dumoulin, he's won the Giro. I mean, last year, man, he finished second in the Giro and the Tour, both times behind Team Sky. You know, you put you put Dumoulin on a on a strong kind of GC oriented team, and that guy could just knock off, I think, Grand Tours because he has that classic model of the time trial machine who can defend in the mountains. Like right now we're seeing, you know, maybe Garen Thomas is still of that vein. I think that time trial in Poe is going to be a big boon for uh, Garrett Thomas's hopes of winning this tour. But the rest of the guys angling for this tour this year, I think, are kind of more to that climber's uh, kind of profile that you're going to win in the, in the tour in the mountains. Whereas a guy like Tom Dumoulin, he's going to win in the time trial and defend in the mountains, kind of like a Chris Froome or the Miguel Enduring kind of uh, uh, type of rider. So you put, uh, I mean, you put Dumoulin on a, on a big team, and I think he could he could really be the, the, the emerging rider of this kind of next generation. But, I mean, on some web, I don't know if they have a question of budget, or just uh, where that team's going, but you, you kind of get a feeling there that he's not getting the support that he needs sometimes. No, I think there's been some questions about especially the medical support um, after he had this injury with whether or not he was going to race the tour. And now some information has come out that he actually had a much more serious injury than was initially reported. And yet the team still wanted him to go do a training camp. Uh, which he bailed out of because his knee wasn't feeling good. So that's going to be a story we follow through the second half of 2019. So, you know, listeners are probably going to be listening to this on the rest day. Maybe you're out on a bike ride. Maybe you're working out and and you're wanting to know some info about which stages to tune into for this second week of the tour. So starting Wednesday through next Sunday, we have stages 11 through 15. And we got some interesting stuff coming up because... We're going into the Pyrenees, and uh, well, Wednesday's stage, you know, it's a little flat. It's, it's, you know, I think that might be one you could skip. Um, boom, you know, Thursday we have our big, first big mountain stage. I believe two giant mountains in kind of a long stage, two hundred kilometer stage. I don't know if I'm going to expect to see the GC completely get shaken up on uh, that stage. Then we have the ITT, and then really I think the day that everyone needs to watch, set your calendars, is Saturday because that is our short, punchy, extremely uh, challenging day that finishes atop the Tourmalet. Yeah, it depends on where they're finishing. La Mangie yeah. is kind of a traditional uh, finish atop the Tourmalet. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of looking first at this, this stage to uh, Bagnier de Bigorre. You know, they got these two climbs. You know, those are kind of those are kind of funny funny climbs though. Sometimes those stages can produce a lot more damage when you kind of, you know, it kind of goes up and down and up and down a long downhill finale. You know, if, if you get caught out on the wrong side of those climbs, you know, there's there's not much room to chase back. So I think we'll see really, of course, you know, this the first true mountain stage of any tour is very indicative of what's going to happen in the rest of the race. So I think we'll see Ineos trying to smash it really, right? If they can eliminate a few more guys, position Garen Thomas and Bernal even in better position than they already are, you know, you whack out a few guys, try to take out a, try to take out a Kweiswick or a, a Buchmann and in distance uh, Quintana and just really secure your position going into that time trial. I think that stage is going to be a little more exciting than perhaps you might want to th- might predict. Because a lot of times these Tourmalet, you know, the Tourmalet, great historic climb, uphill finale, the first real major summit finish of the tour. But sometimes those stages, you know, they're not really that exciting because it's only a question of how fast you can go. You know, it's not going to be one of those dynamic stages with a lot of unpredictability built into the course. This is basically just a time trial to the top of the mountain, and all these guys will know where their level's at, and they'll all 
be riding off their power meters and not want to go into the red. So I think the time gaps there will be significant, but not race changing. Whereas I think some of the other stages, we're going to see some more interesting dynamics of tactics as well as kind of potential for some big changes. I disagree. I think it's going to be amazing. It's good. We both have, we have disagreeing takes on this one. We're going to have to see whether or not. I, I'm just thinking back to stage 17 last year. That was the short stage that finished down in the Pyrenees that saw Garen Thomas, Chris Froome, and uh, Tom Dumoulin throwing some haymakers at each other. That was the day won by Nairo Quintana, actually, in that uh, that early move. And uh, it was it's true. It ended up turning into just sort of a big time trial, see how hard everyone could go. But that also was the first time we saw Chris Froome dropped in the 2018 Tour de France. And the stage, you know, don't overlook this stage uh, 15 to Foix up at the uh, Prat LB, that is a very steep climb. It's not the longest climb of the tour, but that stage, three hard climbs in the last uh, 75K is whatever it is there. Um, that's going to be very hard. The Pyrenees are going to be, I think, are going to really kind of set up who's going to be on the podium, and then the Alps will just kind of put the the cream on the top of the, uh, of the cake there in terms of who's going to win this tour. But I think the Alps, or excuse me, the Pyrenees, are going to be really separate the podium from the rest of the field. You know, I still have hopes for Thibaut Pino. As strong as he looked on La Planche de Belfi and as strong as he looked uh, two days later on stage eight, I feel like he is in top form, at least for climbing. It's such a bummer that he just couldn't get his act together on stage 10 and lost all that time. Um, That's a lot of time. Yeah. 140, 140 is a lot of time. I don't think he's going to be you're not, winning. You're not – yeah. Maybe You're podium. not going to take 140 out of Bernal or Garrett Thomas or any of these guys. No one's going to take 140 out of anybody on a mountain stage in in this in this tour. Now I'm hoping that, I don't, I'm hoping that he can squeeze onto the podium there. He looked he looked pretty good, but God, what the heck was he doing today? Come on, Thibaut Pino. He's just checking checking Facebook or something like that when the move is going. And what about uh, Ala Philippe? You know, Ala Philippe has kind of been hanging around. You know, we. Uh, a lot of people are just kind of dismissing him. Uh, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, in the long 40-minute climbs, he doesn't have the motor to, to hang with the top guys. Um, but Philippe, man, he has been on a tear this season, right? I mean, he's been number one rider all season. He's won all kinds of races. And the way – okay, I mean, the argument is, yeah, he can't hang on the 40-minute climbs. He's been spending a lot of energy to get the yellow jersey and then get it back again with some of these, you know, fantastic racing. I love the way Philippe races, but, you know, I don't think we can discount Philippe really from this race yet. He's strong. He's on a strong team. I think in the long, longer climbs, he'll be at a handicap. But I think by the time you get in the Alps, man, everyone's going to be on their knees. And if he is in good form now, he's going to be in good form in a week. And plus, he's got a pretty good head start. It's not a huge head start. He's only a minute, 12 seconds ahead of Garrett Thomas. But against some of these other guys, you know, he's, he's two minutes ahead of Quintana. You know, so Alaphilippe could perhaps even end up on the podium still. I like it. I like that prediction. Um, I, I, I'm with you. I think that this tour, we're going to remember it as the tour in which Julian Alaphilippe first tried to win the Tour de France. And I know I'm with you. You know, people talk about his strengths in the long climbs or lack thereof, but like he was the KOM jersey winner last year and he had to get over plenty of long climbs that day. I think he may be at a disadvantage when it's day after day of long climbs. So I think we could see him start to... Uh, hemorrhage some time when we get into some of those final alpine stages, but uh, I'm hopeful. Come on, France, we gotta have a, we gotta have one Frenchman on the podium just to you know. Uh, to we're not in France this year. We're not there to get scolded by uh, the various maitre d's and uh, hotel front desk people. Um, and I'm hoping so that like so you, there's yeah. happy French people this year. So you've lost you lost your uh, your love of France is, is revived now. The fact that you're not there, <laughs> the fact that I'm not at the tour this year, I'm just all about France. I really want the French to be happy because I'm not there. Because you're not there. Because you're not getting told at ten oh five that the kitchen closed at ten o'clock. And I'm sorry, Monsieur, you know, we can't serve you dinner tonight. There's a buffalo grill across the street. Hey, anyway. But I think I think that the the Pyrenees, you know, you're looking at the stage profile. Everyone's talking about the Alps, all these high altitude climbs, six climbs over two thousand meters. But I mean, the Pyrenees, they're hard, they're steep. I mean, it won't crown the winner, I don't think, but it, it'll definitely separate the podium contenders from the rest of the field. 
Well, it's going to be plenty of action to keep watching. Um, I hope that all of the listeners have been enjoying the Put Your Socks On podcast with Gus Morton and with Bobby Julie. If you have not listened to it, please take a listen. Um, they Those two guys have re- really great insight into the racing that um, laymen like Andy Hood and I just don't have because we haven't been there, even though our takes tend to be perhaps a little spicier uh, and our analysis of some of the storylines and the wider uh, stories around cycling tend to be different because we are journalists and not writers. Um, But I definitely recommend people give a listen to that. And Andy, I think we're going to check out here. But before we go, I want, uh, want the listeners to check in with one of the Americans racing this tour. As you wrote on the site, we started this race with only four Americans. We're down to three. TJ Van Garderen broke his thumb, is out of the race. But one of the guys who's still in there is Joey Roscoff. And Joey has been is making his Tour de France debut. He's been in the World Tour for a number of years, but never chosen to ride the tour. And with CCC team adopting a strategy of being aggressive and going for breakaways, Joey got the nod this year. So while we get out of here, let's leave the listeners with Joey Roscoff. Okay, Joey, well, thanks for joining us on Velo News. And uh, it's great to see you here on your first Tour de France. Yeah, definitely felt good to get moving again. When you've been sort of thinking about starting the tour for for months now and then even you show up four or five days ahead of time and have a lot of time to sit around and just wait for it so uh, always feels a little bit better to get everything in motion get get into the daily routine of racing again well if we can just go back to those uh, to the, the moment that you were told you were on the tour team can you recall where you were and how the news was broken to you and who by um yeah i mean they they told me in the december training camp already we do a we always do a meeting there to sort of lay out the first race schedule for the year. Um, yeah, this year they were able to more or less pick the team from the beginning. Um, it's kind of, you know, we can always plan for that, but the race schedules are constantly getting shifted around. Um, but yeah, I had a good idea that like if, as long as I could stay healthy and fit, I could be here at the start. You've been a professional for, for quite a few years now, though. I mean, uh, I guess this has been quite a long time coming. Was there any moment that that you wondered whether you would do the Tour de France or not? Yeah, um, for sure. I, I never it was never a given. Um, you know, every, every year I've just was just happy to continue to to be on the team and play a role within the team. And um, the team we always had with BMC was definitely a really selective. Uh, tour spot to make um, but I was still doing a grand tour every year and there wasn't a, a big pressure from within to, that I had to get to the Tour de France or else I mean you know my cycling career was still was still really fun still fulfilling enjoyable um, hard before before now but hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, everyone knows how big of a spectacle this is, so it's still a huge pleasure to be here. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, you, you hear so much about the tour, and now you've had the first couple of days. How different is what you heard to what it, the reality was? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the main thing that makes it different from other races is just the crowds, I think. Um, which feeds to the, the pressure. You always hear about how how stressful it is, how much uh, yeah, I don't know how much pressure there is just amongst the riders, how, from the directors and what they put on themselves, and um, it all just feeds off off, off, its, off itself, I guess. The, yeah. the build up all year long and the, the crowds, and but but it's been amazing. I mean. Especially starting in a cycling-centric country like Belgium, <laughs> Brussels. Yeah, we, we had, you know, we've had uh, the first two stages. One being a, a pretty active uh, bunch, well, a very small bunch finish, yeah. a lot of drama, and then the stress and discipline of a team time trial. That's that's mm-hmm. a lot packed into two days. 
It is, yeah. Um, yeah but, but I feel much more comfortable doing a team time trial. I mean, there's at this point, I feel pretty practiced in that, and uh, the team staff also has been. Whether or not we have the same riders as last year, which we have a lot of anyway, um, I feel like we're pretty practiced in that. If we can get through those days without feeling a huge stress, more stress like just staying safe in a on the Belgian roads in a bunch sprint, or you know today with the pretty hectic finale, some narrow steep climbs. You mentioned how you sort of had an idea for quite a while that you'd be in the tour team. Has that given you, your family and your friends back home a chance to have some really well organised, uh, uh, I guess, support for you? I mean, are they coming over here or are their parties back home <laughs> watching the tour live? It has, indeed. Uh, well, from, I was kind of afraid to tell them or to mention it to them. But, but as soon as I did, they started planning a trip, a big summer trip to France. Uh, I gave them fair warning. These cycling schedules always change. You know, I could crash tomorrow and be out for six months. You never know. Like if you if you plan a trip to France, make sure it's enjoyable in itself, <laughs> not not relying on me being present at the Tour de France because you want to. You have to plan a trip like that months in advance, and I can't tell you for sure if I'm going to be there until a week before if I'm still healthy or not. Um. But it all looks good so far. Yeah. Uh, my brother and his family are here today and tomorrow, and then my, my parents and some other riding buddies from Decatur come, I think they come first rest day. And yep. They'll be here the last last half of the race, doing a bit of a cycling tour and then going to Paris. What was, what was their reaction when you got into the tour? I mean, I know you're a pretty pragmatic sort of person, and uh, uh, I mean, family and friends can get excited for, for their loved ones. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, I'm sure all my parents' friends are kind of tired of actually hearing updates about the tour events and about what I'm doing nowadays. Because um, it is big excitement. I mean, that's one of the only races that's reliably on TV, and it we've been following and that the only race that probably their friends even recognize the name of if they start to talk about cycling and what their son is doing so uh, I'm sure it's it's getting the the, the horse is getting beaten <laughs> about me riding this tour but it seems like everyone's enjoying it I mean I still get a lot of support from them everyone at home yeah Joey, you're in a team now that, as you said, the team has changed its dynamics. It's not a GC team here at the Tour, but one going for stage wins. You've got just here Greg Van Avermaet on your left. Mm -hmm. Big day for him. Um, but there's going to be opportunities for everybody, I'd see, with the calibre of riders on this team, including yourself. Yeah, we have a ton of guys that are uh, really proven in breakaways, and everyone here has done a pretty nice result from a break. Mm -hmm one race or another, a lot in the Tour de France, uh, apart from myself. So, yeah, we can try any day. I, mean, I think when the GC gets more and more established and guys start getting tired, then the chances open up even more mm -hmm. with the flexibility of what the breakaway is allowed to do. And um, that's when we can, when it can be really any random person that's in the break taking their chance. Um, Today there's definitely a good finish for Greg, mm -hmm. um, but also uh, Jumbo Visma who have a double motivation. They could also win the stage and protect the jersey. Um, yeah, a lot of teams, a lot of teams can win from the from the bunch today. So I'm not sure. Okay. It's hard to, to say any of us could go on a break and win but we'll try I mean we have to try every day yeah. we can also try for the break and the finale every day if it comes back just go for Greg what um, is there somebody who's given you the best or strong advice for the tour that really stands out for you is there a message from somebody that you're that's ringing in your head Pretty good at keeping things in perspective and just 
managing the, the, the craziness of it and the yeah the attention and just the remembering to take care of yourself kind of the whole time okay you know, not get caught up in it as much as you can he's a pretty level-headed guy brooke uh, he is i spent a lot of time learning from him the last few years really appreciative of that um just two more questions i know you've got to wrap up um uh what attribute do you think you can give the best for to this team at this tour de france what was the strength that you have that may have even got you selected um you know another card to play in breakaways um yeah when it comes to a sort of a classic style fight for the last 40k on a stage like today i might not be the best but if you need an engine to do any any of the work beforehand you can do that pretty pretty easily um yeah i mean on a good day i can get over a lot of climbs as well <laughs> maybe not on this first chaotic day where the single lane roads and you know just really really punchy climbs but trying to do something in the finish with you have a couple really solid climbs in the middle of the stage and the group is down paired down to half or so okay can still be there and lastly for those who can't for the joey fan club who can't get over here to france <laughs> who's still back in the states following you if you got a message for them for some people who may be listening to you today uh i don't know thanks for all the support i mean it's insane every time i open up my phone i have just messages fun messages all the different apps it's it's like i want to race but honestly yeah, i haven't done anything i just made it to the start of a race so <laughs> can't thank them enough for the support okay joe well, look thanks for joining us in Velo news and we're going to be following you during the tour all right thanks for your time and all the very best look forward to it thanks